Welcome everyone to week two, I think it's week two, uh, of, of the Football Outsiders Friday Film Show. Uh, I'm Derek Klassen, this is Kale Clinton. Kale, how you doing, buddy? Doing well, doing well. Coming off a interesting Thursday night game, but we got a, we got a good slate ahead of us this weekend, so couldn't the, the be happier Thursday, about that. This Thursday night game, after the previous Thursday night game, was a little bit of like, <laughs> it was a little bit of a reminder of how bad Thursday night football usually is. Uh, we're not usually going to get, you know, Chargers Chiefs. <laughs> you're you're going to get a lot more of these uh, Brown Steelers games that end up being a heartbreaker for betters at the end um, and a heartbreak for anybody who had to watch the rest of the 59 minutes and 59 seconds of the game. <laughs> um, but we're not. Normally, I would want to spend some time on that Thursday game, but I think that game was kind of just not enjoyable to watch. So I think we're going to skip over it and we're going to get right into um, into some of the week's games. Before, before we do that, I want to remind everyone, uh, of Underdog Fantasy. Play on Underdog Fantasy with us and double your first deposit up to $100 with promo code OUTSIDERS. Even with the NFL best ball season over, Underdog does have some other friendly user uh, games to spice up your formats. Try their Battle Royale, a six-round best ball draft with similar chances to win, uh, with simpler chances to win than traditional daily fantasy sports sites, or try their Pick'em games, <clears throat> where you can wager on players' chances to go higher or lower than their projected stats lines, even in states where traditional prop betting currently is not available. Join the fun over at underdogfantasy.com or download the Underdog app uh, from your app store. And remember to use promo code OUTSIDERS to double your first deposit up to $100. Kale, let's get into, um, I think in some ways, at least for draft people, one of the most exciting games of uh, uh, of the slate last week, which was Colts-Jaguars. Obviously, it was super exciting from the Trevor Lawrence angle. He finally looked like the god. Um, but we're going to start on the other end um, and why the Colts, my beloved Colts, who I, for whatever reason, believed in going into the season, are kind of collapsing. Um, so take it away. That's the thing, though, right? Most of us believed in them. Like, I, I don't know why I let... I don't know why I let Ballard do this to me. I hate... I don't think Chris Ballard is a good GM, and I let him trick me this, this offseason. But even still, like... You look at the rest of that division. You look at the AFC South, top to bottom, probably one of the worst in football. They bring in a new quarterback. They bring in some, you know, Stefan Gilmore, Yannick Ngakwe. You think they've got some names. And then you just remember, like, oh, no, not everything immediately works out. I think the team that's been the odds-on favorite the AFC South has arguably looked like the worst of the four, which is really taken me aback. But – they were the centerpiece of this week's Any Given Sunday. So let's get into it. I think I think we've got to start out with Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan looks Rest in peace. <laughs> every year of his 37 years of age. It's really bad. It is there are accuracy issues, there are timing issues. He's really not moving around the pocket as well as I thought he'd be. I I think it's really represented well in his first interception. So Jacksonville's not doing anything crazy here on this. They've got two cornerbacks really dropped off, providing a big cushion. You've got one guy back in cover one, uh, Rayshon Jenkins. This ball that gets looped into, uh, uh, I think it's Ashton Doolin, just... It is not only way too far in front of him by a good two yards, but this ball is looped in there. Like, it is just – Matt Ryan, like, noodle arm watch is on red alert right now. 
And because uh, Rayshon Jenkins has enough time. He's all the way drops back, has enough time to watch the ball cover about, you know, I think it's a good 15 yards that he runs to get in front of this ball, 20 yards maybe. Gets all the way in there to get the pick that's, again, two yards in front of Ashton Jewell. Just a real, like, there's no semblance to this offense. Ryan kind of throws a heave up there, and Jenkins is able to get under it and track it down like it's a fly ball in the game. Ryan not being able to throw the corner out like that or well anymore, I feel like is very specific to him in terms of, like, understanding his collapse. Because at his best... Ryan might have been the best corner thrower in the NFL, along with like peak Philip Rivers. You know, like if you went like, you know, watch the film like six, seven years ago and you were just looking at corner routes, Rivers and Ryan were like, those were the dudes throwing those routes. Um, and I think even last year he was still able to throw those. But like, I think you saw even on that play, if he's even the tiniest bit uncomfortable or if the throw is a tiny bit too far out of his range, he just doesn't have it anymore. And I think that is, I mean, this whole Indianapolis ship was built on the fact that like Matt Ryan would not quite hit the age wall just yet, that he maybe still had something left because I think he did in Atlanta. It looks like we're at the wall and that's going to be a really, really big problem for this offense. Even when they get their players back. I don't know if this is going to be like, maybe it's Matt Ryan, maybe it's just situational, but we've seen a lot of old or like older quarterbacks receive like genuine investments from teams. Like, Brady, Rodgers re-upping on his deal to become the highest-paid quarterback. Russell Wilson, before he even takes a – we'll get into Denver. Russell Wilson, before he even takes a snap, gets a five-year mega deal from Denver. Like, there's been a real investment in quarterbacks because between – I think it probably starts with Rivers and Brady, but there was this whole belief that, oh, guys are playing longer than ever. Ben Roethlisberger was the antithesis to that, but it's like – Oh, the guy's in a walking boot every other week. He's covered in ice bags. Like, he's the exception rather to the trending rule. And Roethlisberger always seemed like not the type of guy that was going to be interested at keeping his body in shape to play through his 40s. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't that surprising that he kind of let it go. Yeah, and even in play style, he's not the kind of guy that's going to age well either. Mm -hmm. But I think Ryan's going to be the first – not really like canary in a coal mine because I don't think it's a total disaster, but I think it's the first step in a pendulum swinging backward to like, oh no, these guys aren't immortal. Like these guys are gonna age at some point. He looks closer. Not it's not <laughs> this bad yet. It's not close to this bad, but he looks closer to like the end of Peyton Manning than he oh, does yeah. a lot of these other older quarterbacks that have actually been able to kind of keep some longevity. So the one strength the Colts offense has is Jonathan Taylor. I, I mean, from the volume of work that he got last year, in the first week at least, it didn't look like he missed a step, which was pretty impressive to me. Uh, just with the volume of work he got, 31 carries, 161 yards rushing, a touchdown, also targeted seven times in the passing game. Like, he is the lifeblood of this team. Credit to the Jacksonville offense – or the Jacksonville defense – for just really fitting the run well on a lot of these plays. Uh, Jonathan Taylor finishes this game at 54 yards of rushing. Two rushes for 21 yards apiece represent the vast majority of that rushing total. Taylor was stopped for zero yards three different times on 12 rushes. 
and then I think at another three rushes of two yards. But Jacksonville just does a really good job of having every guy in place really just giving Taylor nowhere to run in the system, takes a jab step, just completely gets swallowed up by three white jerseys. And I think it's just more indicative of the fact that, again, this Colts team isn't what we thought it was. This team has Quentin Nelson and a bunch of guys. Like, it's it's not the Colts line that we've thought it's been the last, you know, five, maybe ten years. Even then, I kind of want to say I don't think Nelson looks like himself at all. I I think he's been not – he doesn't look nearly as athletic and mobile as I think that he he used to. And I don't know if that's just him, you know, some of the injuries getting down on him. I don't know if it's just a weird year. I don't know. But the fact that even – like you said, the rest of the offensive line is not what it used to be. And then if Quentin Nelson is not even what he used to be – I I don't understand how this is supposed to turn around unless – they magically just those players just get better, which I don't know. Yeah. And as good as Jonathan Taylor is the rushing attack is a like an, at least an equal part function of running back an offensive line, mm-hmm. no matter how good Taylor is, you see it in this game. They only rushed him 12 times. He can't run the ball. If his offensive line is getting swallowed up and the Jags front seven is at least above average. Like, they've been really good this year in run defense, but this is, like, the Colts should be able to beat this. 100%. Like, it's not – the Jags front has been good, but it's not, like, an insurmountable obstacle. You still have Quentin Nelson, who, like I said, doesn't look as good, but he's still Quentin Nelson. You have Ryan Kelly, who's a good center. This this should be fine. It should be, like, functional. And it's – the fact that it's not, um, at least, you know, against a front that was, like, above average – I'm very scared to see what it looks like against fronts that are even better than what Jacksonville has. So flipping the other side of the ball, one of the biggest losses the Colts suffered this year is losing Matt Eberflus to Chicago's uh, head coaching job. They're bringing Gus Bradley. This defense is very, very undisciplined. It is the biggest thing that stood out to me is just how often I don't know if it's an aggression thing from a Bradley defense perspective or what, but just the, you know, they bite a lot on just really simple stuff. The two plays really jumped out to me. This uh, this first play is a uh, play-action screen to Dan Arnold, I believe. Uh, it sets up the Christian Kirk touchdown to the next play. But to get him into a goal-and-go uh, goal situation – they fake the handoff. Most of the Colts defenders bite on this. There is one guy left on an island who is forced to make this tackle. They have three offensive linemen releasing to block for Arnold. And if the rightmost blocker actually chips this guy, Arnold's at least getting down on the five. He has one matchup left before he gets to the end zone. But you look at this Colts deep. Most of this team bites on this, which is we'll see a worse one later, but just the two, uh, the safety over top and the outermost corner have their assignments, the guys running routes to clear out the area that leaves one guy. So the fact that the other eight blue jerseys on defense bid on this is really telling. There's an even worse one on a fake pitch that Jacksonville runs. It 
they fake the pitch to the right side. I, I forget if, if this is James Robinson in the backfield. The entire Colts defense bites. The entire Colts defense bites. There is one safety over top that is left to make this shot. And basically, this is just he's, – he's got enough of a cushion where the wide receiver that catches this has all day. Safety does a good job closing in. If Lawrence leads him, if – like, that's that's the other thing with Jacksonville, which we can talk about separately, is they left – like, this was a 24 nothing, you know, throttling of the Colts, and they left a lot of opportunities on the table. Yeah, that's the thing. Trevor Lawrence completed 25 25- <laughs> 30 passes and you were like this could have been better <laughs> like yeah. that's how bad the gust the gust defense was and i think to your point like they should be more disciplined than they are but i do think this is kind of just a function of the way that gus bradley's defenses work like they're going to get one man in one gap and they're going to play downhill on everything um and i think that's why you saw i think this is even why you saw so many of their fakes were actually like um outside stuff like the fake pitch um handoffs like off tackle and trying to do stuff like that is because their run game a lot of the time they were doing was also trying to get to the perimeter because if if in this Gus Bradley cover three you're only rushing four system those defensive ends have to pin their ears back if the defensive ends are pinning their ears back what can you do a tight end or a a receiver in a tight split can just knock that dude inside and now you have an alley to run with and that's all that they were trying to do and then they they ran a lot of their fake stuff off of it um like both of the plays you just mentioned so this Gus Bradley thing can kind of work if you have the players, but I think we saw in this game, the edge rushers are not as good as we thought they were. The linebackers are really bad without Shaquille Leonard and the secondary God bless Julian Blackman for trying, but the rest of them do not look good right now. Yeah. Speaking of age, Gilmore looks old too. Yeah. He, he looks like he doesn't have it right now. Um, And I guess actually, Oh, before we finish up on beating the hell out of Gus Bradley, I have one other play that I kind of wanted to get into. Um, and this was kind of, again, it just goes back to, you know, everything Gus is going to do is going to come back to cover three, whether that's coming out from the snap being cover three, whether that's, you know, they're rotating to cover three or they're checking to cover three based on what you do. And one time uh, the Jaguars did get uh, the Colts defense to kind of check into a cover three situation that I don't think they, they wanted to be in. So in this play, it the way that NFL films kind of cut it, it, you can't really see the shift, but they opened with – the Jaguars opened with three tight ends. They came out in 13 personnel. All three of them were lined up on the line of scrimmage on the left side. So naturally, uh, like the the all of the Colts – they're in base defense. So they have three linebackers on the field, and then they have their entire front set to the strength. So they want everybody – they want their uh, three-tech, and they want all their linebackers pushed to the strength of the formation. Well, the Jaguars shift out of it into a trips formation, and they're like, well, I guess we still have to put strength to the formation. So they put uh, everybody, they push all their linebackers back over to to where the trips side is. The problem is Jamal Agnew was already lined up on the right side of the line of scrimmage, and now he's the number three in trips. Well, now (laughs) you have all of your linebackers pushed over to the trips side, and Jamal Agnew is the speed three here, and he gets matched up on a linebacker. And he runs free. The problem is he has he's a punt returner, so he doesn't catch the ball. But the the ball, like it's such a good example of being able to get a defense in the call that you want them to get into and getting a bad matchup just based on like what kind of personnel they came out of 
and what kind of uh, formation they shifted into. And it was in like, it was an incredible throw by Lawrence. It was incredibly well-timed, like placed, like everything. Agnew just doesn't bring it in. That is encouraging to me long-term just because like next year when we assume this team has better players, that's a touchdown. Um, Maybe even by the end of the year, if these guys develop a little bit more, that's a touchdown. So um, I I think, yeah, Bradley just got abused. And I think Doug Peterson and Trevor Lawrence, to their credit, had a hell of a game plan to beat cover three and, and they executed it extremely well. Yeah, this is the play that I pointed out uh, in any given Sunday where I was like, yeah, the Jags just – this could have been way better. Like, if yeah. they if they have an elite wide receiver one, even if this just isn't Jamal Agnew. Like, Zay Jones could make this catch. I think Marvin Jones could make yeah. this catch. If it's anyone but Jamal Agnew, this is a touchdown. I, I, yeah. I also appreciate you just explaining all the extra, like, extra nuance of, like, how they get him in this position and it's, like – I can at least, you know, I have the film aptitude of like, yeah, I know this is this is bad. Like, <laughs> bad by the Colts, and this could have been better by the Jaguars. Getting the extra explanation, that's, you know, it's it's good to get the second set of eyes on this. But thank you. Thankfully, Gus Bradley kind of made that one pretty easy for me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll take it. Um, all right, enough of bashing Gus Bradley, even though we'll probably be back in the same position at some point over the rest of the season when somebody else does it to them and even better offense probably does this to them. Um, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about Garrett Wilson and and how the jets have, have used him effectively. Um, I had a little bit of questions about Garrett Wilson coming out of college, just from these perspective of he's kind of a wiry receiver. He's like six foot one, one ninety, which is if you're going to be not purely a slot receiver, like just lining up in the slot, you're going to need some, some help getting into positions where you don't have to be on the line of scrimmage and getting pressed. And I just kind of wondered if often, you know, whatever offense drafted him was going to be able to do that. Well, I think the jets have not had any issues uh, doing that with him. I think we saw that, especially last week um, against the Browns. I think they did a a really good job making sure that he had clean releases and was able to, to just use his athleticism. The first one, the first play I want to pull up is, uh, so the Jets kind of motion into this this bunch formation. Um, they start in two by or two by two, and then they motion Barrios over. I think that's Braxton Barrios into a bunch formation. Wilson is the outside receiver in the bunch, but just because of the way a bunch works, um, he's not the point man. He's not on the line of scrimmage. The point man is Elijah Moore, who I think can actually beat press pretty well because he's kind of a thicker receiver, even though he's a little bit short. Um, so Wilson is the number one. He's the outside guy in the bunch. He has a free release here. He can do whatever the hell he wants. He's not going to get hit at the line of scrimmage. That's not going to be a problem. As soon as this, uh, the ball is snapped, he gets to just run through the second level of the Browns defense, like vertically. And he really, really pushes and stresses this safety. And you can just see, I'll roll it back a little bit again, how horrified this safety is that Wilson is going to try to take him over the top. And you can see him trying to settle and like get depth, get depth. And he does not even want to initially drive on this outside route that Wilson ends up running because I think he's horrified that this is going to still snap back to the middle of the field. Um, And Wilson just kind of gets like a huge swath of ground over here to the sideline. Flacco misses the ball. It is a little bit tougher of a throw than it looks just because of where this cornerback underneath is angled. But the speed that he has, like when you give him that free run off the line of scrimmage is terrifying for defenses. And I think that was a good example there was another one later in the game, actually right before the half, <clears throat> the Jets were kind of, they were pushing to try to get, not just in field goal range, but they were trying to score before the half. And I think this was on a third down. 
they come out again. They come out actually in empty this time. It's a three by two. Wilson is initially the number one receiver all the way outside. He is not fully on the line of scrimmage, but he's close enough that like if the receiver or if the corner wanted to press him, he could. What the Jets do is they motion him back into a stack behind the slot receiver, Corey Davis here. He can't get pressed on the line of scrimmage and he works, you know, the, the grounds end up having to um, switch like who's covering who in this stack. Like they just kind of let the slot receiver take Wilson because Wilson comes in. They let the slot corner take Wilson because Wilson comes inside. Um, but because Wilson just can't get pressed because of the way they get into this stack formation, he's able to just use all of his athleticism, beat the guy over the middle of the field and get like 10 yards of yak, put the jets on the 10 right before the half. Like, the fact that they are just making it so easy for him to use his athleticism and not have to worry about being this like guy who has to be pressed, guy who has to make these catches in traffic, all that stuff. It's so, so important. And and I think, you know, credit to the other two receivers there who like can play the other roles and not allow him to have to do that. But it, it's just such a good job, I think, by the Jets coaching staff and credit to Wilson for making the most of all of his opportunities. I mean, he beat the bricks out of the Browns. Speed. I know he doesn't have the the frame that you'd ideally like from you know an X receiver or however you want to really use him, but speed and change of direction is such a lethal combination. Like mm-hmm. you go back to that first play, it is a straight up. It's the football version of a jump scare for that safety yeah. <laughs> without <laughs> taking him over the top. Like before Wilson makes his cut, the safety literally jumps backwards like a full step to get ready to open his hips and go for the go route and start running after Wilson and just turns on a dime to be able to get that. And like you said, credit to LaFleur for just putting Wilson in situations to succeed. I think in writing the Jets chapter last year, that was by far the Jets offense. I know the skill position players weren't there. And by the end of the season, they were left with, I think it was just, you know, Braxton Barrios and Jamison Crowder, and even Crowder was getting hurt yeah. at points. Like all their top guys are gone. But I think the biggest strength that this team has is in their offensive coordinator. You know, Sal's done a really good job with this defense, but the creativity out of the floor in this system to not only like I really enjoyed la- last year watching the Jets run like five gadget plays a game, but watching him maximize the utility of all of his receivers. And, you know, in that second play, putting him in a stack at Corey Davis, making sure that he can't get into a position to be pressed. And that allows him to get that, you know, little bit of release and extra step on the corner that eventually picks him up. Just knowing your personnel so well and knowing them enough to maximize their utility, even if when you like, even if the Jets don't have the best players, it is the best possible – like, you're going to put him in the best possible situation to succeed, and I think arguably that's more important or or that at least creates a higher ceiling than having, you know, at least one, like, really elite guy. I, I mean, I think absolutely. And I think for – especially for young receivers, like, it's just so important to just let them do what they do best instead of – I think if he went to, like, any number of teams, they would have just been like, well, you're our X receiver now. Figure it out. It's like, well, that's not fair um, because that's just, like, you shouldn't have drafted him if that's the type of receiver that you wanted. But, again, I think, like we both mentioned, just credit to the Jets for really understanding their personnel and, and putting 
all of their their players really in the best position to win and kind of free up really all of the other guys to win. Speaking of receivers who have been allowed um, to be kind of unlocked by their offense and really get a lot of help by their offense and make good on it, Detroit has maybe one of the best receivers from last year's class, even though he was like a mid-round pick. He's, he's really, I think at this point, already one of the best guys. Uh, Amon Ross St. Brown, I know, uh, I think Matt Harmon has called him like Diet Coke Cooper Cup. We're getting to the point where maybe it, he's he deserves a little bit more respect <laughs> than that. Kale, take it away. The cool, we'll get, we'll get into the actual game of Amon Ross St. Brown. The coolest thing about it, you know, we're an analytics company, but we like to talk vibes sometimes because sometimes that's the simplest denotator of a situation. I I get like run through a brick wall levels of pumped up watching St. Brown at a podium rattle off every receiver taken before him, mm-hmm. where they went to college, you know, calling out uh, Deami Brown against the commander. That one was cold. <laughs> that was like almost unfair. It was <laughs> – it was rough. He is he is a cold-blooded guy, and there is a reason he is named after the Egyptian sun god Ra. Like he is, and he's awesome. I, I'm I'm really also impressed with how Detroit's like we've talked about with Lafleur getting Wilson open. I'm really impressed with how Detroit has managed to kind of maximize how they use. St. Brown and get him open. So we'll start out here. This is the big, I I think it was a 49 yard catch that St. Brown had. He gets open. uh, He starts out here, sort of lined up in the slot. The Lions, I keep wanting to call them Jaguars. I'm getting stuck on wrong jungle (laughs) cats. Uh, Lions then motion Hawkinson. I think this is Shark as well. They drop St. Brown out of the line of scrimmage. They drop him a little bit back. Shark takes the point. They're now in a bunch after isolating St. Brown. The way this opens up, Hawkinson pulls this linebacker, cornerback, I can't tell, out of coverage. Pulls him out of the middle. The point man in this runs outside, and there's a bit of a switch going on here. The way that Goff's eyes look, there's a cornerback in press, and there's a cornerback drop back. There's a miscommunication here by Washington that sold so well because of Goff's eyes. The guy who's originally covering Chark stays with him. Because he's selling it with the eyes, the cornerback that's originally covering St. Brown also buys that Chark's the guy. He now gets double covered by two corners, and because Goff's helmet is so fixed, you know, going back to what, like Madden 05 with the vision cone? (laughs) Because Goff's helmet is so fixed, that then pulls the single high safety all the way down. So now three different commanders, secondary members, are addressing Shark, running a go route up the middle. This leaves St. Brown just over the middle. The safety doesn't recognize it until the ball's already delivered to St. Brown. And then he goes runs, you know, completely flips the field for Detroit, eventually sets up a touchdown, but just a great use of with a little trickeration, with a little pre-snap motion, switching up the scenario for St. Brown, 
getting him into just a wide open release over the middle. And that's where he's been most effective is just on these horizontal crossing routes. Some a little bit out to the outside, but they're not quite using him on as many vertical routes because his just horizontal speed and ability to beat guys is so impressive. We're going back to a little bit red zone action where they try and open him up, you know, when there's not as much space as the open field. You get down to the red zone. It's a fourth and four uh, right on the goal line. Fourth and goal from the four on the goal line. They motion St. Brown. They get him open in space. Commander guy follows him. Just this really well-run whip route. And then just the ability with the commander pretty much on his back shoulder to just beat the tackle and punch it in. Really impressive level of strength for a guy that doesn't exactly have, you know, like we talked about. He's not a big guy. No, I, I wouldn't outright call him wiry, but like, you know, it's a pretty, pretty petite kind of receiver. <laughs> <laughs> he's the wrong word, like, build, yeah, yeah. It's it's impressive that he's leveraging that kind of strength to fight for that extra yard to get into the end zone. Last play I want to show off is this jet sweep that they run with him, which again just really maximizing that horizontal speed that you have at St. Brown. Uh, I've got to pull this up in a second. So just pretty simple. I also, I think a lot of this is on a lot of these big blow up plays by St. Brown are kind of also partly on the commander's secondary for just buying some bad looks. I mean, I wrote about it last year in like week, or maybe that I was like, this defense is blowing more coverages than anybody in the league. We are almost to week four of the new season, and they are still blowing more coverages <laughs> than anybody except for maybe Cleveland. <laughs> it's it's not good. It, it, this is another, you know, 50-plus yard play for St. Brown here. Gets the Jets. He's put in motion. Gets the jet sweep. But – the lines are also going to continue to push and also fake the handoff to the outside. Brown easily beats one-on-one with 90 over here, the left edge, edge rusher. The outermost cornerback, number three for Washington, is still just following a receiver that is now fully in block mode. Like, is, is not really running a route anymore. He's looking inside to try and find someone to block. This should theoretically be a one-on-one with the cornerback to get to the outside, but number three for Washington still just flowing with his guy. And again, like the safety who bites too early and then looks back and sees that St. Brown's got the ball basically parallel to him, doesn't look to notice St. Brown running. Quarterback's also kind of got eyes looking at that, uh, that extra handoff, but he doesn't recognize it until Brown is, again, basically like one to two yards shallow of just being parallel with him. At that point, it's a foot race. And with this level of speed, he gets caught. But I think that's also just more from the sheer usage that they got out of St. Brown because they're Mm -hmm. using him on almost every snap, whether he's running a route, whether he's decoy on things. The amount of usage, I think if he's got fresh legs, he probably doesn't get caught there, and that's a 70-yard touchdown. 
Yeah, I mean, he is their offense at this point. And, like, they have other good players, but it all entirely runs through him. And I think the only thing I would add is, like, the cool thing about the first play um, where, where they kind of got him over uh, open on that, like, dig route, that's a super, like, common route concept. Everybody in the league is running where they're getting somebody running on that, like, 8 to 10-yard over route and then the dig running behind it. Every offense in the league, I promise you, is trying to get to that. But Detroit getting to it the way they did with shifting the formation around, getting their best player in the free release from the bunch, running it from a bunch in general is kind of annoying just because of like the splits are going to kind of mess up some of the defensive rules. That's all offense really is. Nobody's doing anything new or, or it's just like, how do you get to the good stuff? And like, how are you enabling your best players? And I think Detroit did a really good job there. I just um, want to remind the viewers and listeners at home. This surprisingly, this surprisingly good Lions team will still at some point this season get Jamison Williams into the fold as well. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, this is like – Detroit is – if I don't know if – people seem secure at this point in who they've got for quarterbacks, at least for the time being. This Detroit Lions team, if any veteran free agent – or any veteran quarterbacks – get freed up and are looking for, you know, greener pastures elsewhere. Unless Zach Wilson, you know, completely implodes, the Detroit Lions might be the best gig in town because they now have an, you know, pretty solid offensive line, two very strong running backs, a defense that, while not fantastic, you know, is getting some interesting pieces in there. They look starting to develop. They're better. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of the better situations in football for a guy to walk right into. I mean, even Jared Goff now is playing, like, fine, which yeah. for him is, like, that's, that's where you want to be. <laughs> um, all right. I, I'm sure we're probably going to hit Detroit a number of times this week or uh, this year, so this is only the first. This is just a taste. Um, moving on to a, a different uh, D team, Denver. The, the Russell Wilson offense has been – the Russell Wilson offense. It has been exactly what we all thought it was going to be. They only take sideline shots. Um, it's very discombobulated. They've taken a billion years to get out of every huddle because apparently Russell Wilson is calling most of the plays. It's just not a very fluid offense. And what you've kind of put together here, Kale, is that their offense's issues really kind of all come to a head anytime they get into the red zone, more specifically inside the 10-yard line. Yeah, it is. So Denver's got a lot of problems. Let's be real, especially on the offensive side of the ball. They have a lot of issues between Nathaniel Hackett and Russell Wilson. What's really interesting is that it all exists in a microcosm in goal-to-go situations. I'm going to just read off some stats right now. In the red zone, Denver's 31st in DVOA with a Minus 126.3. They're 28th in red zone passing with a negative 71.3. They're dead last in the league in red zone rushing. And brace yourselves with a negative 233.5% DVOA. And then goal to go situations, 31st, minus 155.5. They are 0 for 5 on the goal line. Also, just need to add, they've only gotten go to go situations legitimately twice out of those five times three of those times i believe twice in denver and once in seattle they got to the goal line off of dpi 
Like they're not earning these goal to go situations. They're kicking field goals from the 18. They are like, it, it's, it's a genuine letdown in what they're doing. And I think all of the reasons that they're not scoring in these situations is completely, is wholly emblematic and represented in play calling personnel decisions and outcomes in goal to go situations. So we're first going to go to the first of two goal to go situations in their game against Houston. What I've done is I've put together all the entire, like once they hit first and goal, I've put together the entire thing. I've only got, I only have end zone plays for some of them because we don't really need to see it, but first play here, they get out 13 personnel. It's a decent play concept. We've got a receiver wide out, uh, wide out to the left. He's in a one-on-one, and they throw this little fade route, which Russell Wilson fade routes in the red zone or in the uh, on the goal line. Never go great. Uh, so I don't know why it's his go-to, but this play called a touchdown on the field, eventually reversed. Can I say why it's his go-to? Why? Because he's short. <laughs> he can't oh, we'll throw the middle of the field. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. So they run this. They run this play. Ends up being a touchdown. Turns out receiver doesn't stay in bounds. It gets reversed. Second down. This is not the tape repeating. They run the exact same play. <laughs> Thirteen personal right side. Wide receiver out to the left, isolated. Stingley just outright breaks this one up and looks so disrespected that they just ran the exact same play to him twice in a row. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is bad. So third down, you know, they run some crossing routes over the middle. They have one guy outside. Russ stays way too long in this pocket. If you look this, it looks like he kind of heaves it back up to the middle. The receiver almost comes up with it, not really. You look at the end zone view of this. This is a Russ timing thing. So – it's a weird situation where the receiver Jameson Williams releases from the backfield and is just staring right in the middle. There are two linebackers pretty close to him, but with a decent velocity, you can get this ball in no problem, and this is six. And Wilson has that velocity. That's not his issue. That's not the thing that's fallen off for us. Like, you know, he's lost a little bit of the deep ball. He's just some – compared to where he's been the rest of the year – Four of his five best seasons in accuracy have come the last four years. One of his two worst seasons in accuracy is this year through two games. I don't really get what's going on, but the accuracy is just not there like we've expected. But this play on third and goal, Williams is right there. Zip this ball in and it's six. He waits. He wants to look off the linebacker. By the time he looks off the linebacker, the defensive tackle that's got this matchup with the guard here is free enough where he's able to just get a hand on this. Any other quarterback this goes over the head of, but he basically hits this guy in the helmet and it pops up and it ends up going incomplete, even though, you know, the receiver in the back of the end zone makes a pretty good play on this, but he does just catch it, but <laughs> I know, but it's just an issue with not only where Russ is at as a quarterback right now in terms of, you know, his play calling decisions, what he prefers, and how he's kind of handling the ball. And also just Nathaniel Hackett's inexperience as a play caller. Running those two plays back-to-back on the exact same play is just poor coaching. It's poor play calling. You 
Like, it was barely open the first time. Don't go back there. It's not like they'll never expect it twice. Like, no, <laughs> Derrick Henry very much expected. Or, uh, Derek Stingley, not Derek Henry. Very much expected that. Second also, play, we're going to the – I, I also just like – they can run the ball. Yeah. Like, I I don't understand why they're scared to run the ball. <laughs> we're not I, – I, this is not – you know, I'm not doing a full dissection of Nathaniel Hackett. I don't need to get into the uh, third and one play call of a uh, of a tight end option run. Uh, where the, <laughs> like, we don't need to get into all that. I'm kind of doing this as a, as a bit of a case study. But the play calling there is saves for Andy Reid. That one's saved for Andy (laughs) Reid and Andy Reid only. (laughs) It is – Javante Williams is averaging six yards a carry in this game. He's lighting up this Houston defense, and they just – why would you call that? Russ needs to get his touchdowns for the MVP, you know. (laughs) So, second one I want to look at is the goal to go in the – it's the first fumble by Seattle. First down, Russ runs a play action, fake handoff. It's a flood concept. They've got three guys all breaking to the outside left side of the field. Russ stays strong in the pocket, and it's pretty tight, but he just goes to the most open route, and it's the sh- it's the most shallow route. Same exact thing that we've talked about. It's Russ going to the sideline over and over. The guy that's guarding him gets a release. This is a fine play, you know. Like, not the best play calling, whatever. It's a fine play. You got to go to the shallow guy. You got to go. It's open. Get some kind of yardage. Second down, it's basically the, again, close to a very similar concept. A couple crossing routes here. This Javante, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention. This Javante Williams runs snuffed out, but they get a delay a game. So instead of losing two yards, they lose five. This is just a lack of discipline by the Seahawks team. We'll see it again later, but the discipline on this team kills them. It is they are not threatening the end zone, and when they do, it's they they screw it up somehow. The second uh, so the second down is now on the eleven yard line. It's a very similar thing. It's just an out route. Russ hits the guy that's releasing. It's you know they're not really getting they're getting two three yards. They're not attacking the end zone. They're just kind of inching up ever closer and then just never really getting there. The third down concept, they end up hitting, uh, I think this is Gordon on the Texas route. Uh, Decent job trying to fight for it. Doesn't quite get there. Stopped on the one. And then this is just, this is the fumble. Like this is completely snuffed out. You got to help. You got to, you know, ball security, job security, whatever. Play gets snuffed out. But they're only put in that situation. I, I respect the aggressiveness by going for it on fourth and goal. Respect oh, yeah. is respect is a you know, whatever. That's probably too much credit. You probably should be going it <laughs> fourth and goal in a one goal game in that situation. But like at least they're going for it. At least they're not kicking field goals on fourth and goal. But you're not in that situation if you don't A get that false start. B actually attack the end zone for three plays prior. Like you're throwing, like we talk about, you know, to the stick sometimes and how, you know, you're not going to get first downs off yak. Like you've got to at least like attack beyond the first downs to try and get there unless you're really opening it up and giving your guys space. You're not going to get touchdowns if you're throwing it below the goal line and there's three 
uh, Nickelodeon slime green jerseys hovering around <laughs> your mascot. Back to the discipline thing. This last concept here. It's just they're only the closest they've come to a goal line touchdown eventually gets wiped off here because of another false start. The Seahawks have 25 penalties through two games and a minus 13 penalty differential in terms of benefit to hurt. That's both of those are by far the most in the league. This is a deeply, deeply undisciplined. You mean the Broncos? What did I call the Seahawks? Very confusing because of Russ, but (laughs) Um, the film is the Seahawks. Yeah. Okay. And it's also a Seahawks game. Exactly. A lot of reasons to go wrong here, but first down on this play, I actually like fun fact. This is the same play that they used uh, for Justin Herbert's first touchdown in week two against Kansas city. It's a great option for a mobile quarterback. Russ can either really turn the corner, punch it in. He's got a lead blocker here. He's got a guy running this out route uh, or this, uh, you know, crossing route toward the end zone uh, sideline. The two guys here are giving him pressure so he can't actually turn the quarter and rush in for the touchdown. Tries to get it to the uh, receiver who's pretty tightly covered. Ends up catching it, but he's out of bounds. No go. Second down play. Just a, you know, solid concept. here. They fake the run to – or uh, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong play. Second down and three. They punch it in. I believe it's a tight end in the backfield. Yeah. Is getting off this release. Fake it to Williams. Pitch it to uh, 83 here. He punches it in. This just gets wiped off the board by Cortland Sutton running his route a half step too early. So they're only the only time that they've crossed the plane in a goal to go situation. It gets wiped off because of a false start by the receiver. Uh, who's not even like the, he should not even be in the play anyway. It doesn't matter what he's yeah, doing on the play. He's split out. He's so uninvolved that like just sit back on your heels. Like don't worry about this. You don't have to sell this that hard. Everyone in the front seven's the guy that needs to be sold. So in the third down situation, you know they actually have routes crossing the goal line, but Russ doesn't like what he sees. Kind of just heaves it in, goes to Sutton, like a little bit pressured. I'd argue. He maybe stays strong in the pocket here. It's not the biggest pressure, but it's a good rollout. Gets it off. The last play is just completely blown up in third and eight. We don't got to get into this anymore. It's just the play is done. He throws it out the back of the end zone. But you just squandered your potentially only offensive touchdown two games. A touchdown that would put you in the situation where you don't have to kick that 64-yard field goal at all. That becomes a non-decision, and you screw it up just because of the lack of discipline. It's There's a lot, a lot of problems in this Denver offense right now between some elements of Russ, you know, losing what he kind of had, whether that's an atomic situation, that's something that can be developed or whatever. We've got Nathaniel Hackett play-calling issues, but there's just a lack of discipline. There's a lack of aggression in the actual play-calling itself. And until this gets fixed, the team that we thought was going to be a very fun offense is just not not going to function. And they can't even come close to keeping up with the rest of this division as well. This is what happens when you have a rookie head coach with a very young staff with a quarterback who needs very specific offensive accommodations. 
This is exactly what happens. And I think specifically, like, why they struggle passing the offense, I kind of joke that it's because Russ is short. It's it's because Russ is short and because he isn't as athletic as he used to be. Because Kyler Murray has the same problems with, like, not being able to always see the middle of the field in the red zone. The difference is that Kyler Murray is the best scrambler in the NFL right now. And Russ used to be, and that used to let him bail himself out of these situations. And now we're seeing the difference in like what it looks like when you still have all that athleticism with Kyler Murray and what it looks like when you can't like, you know, lean back on some of that stuff the way that Russ has. Um, so yeah, the Denver offense, maybe they'll figure it out by the end of the year. You hope so. If not, they absolutely have to by year two. Um, I do and- think that some of this is a bit of like, all like it's benefit of the doubt because the guy's won a Super Bowl. He's, yeah. you know, Looks good in a lot of different situations, even as early as, you know, I, I think all but two years Russ has started at quarterback. The Seahawks have finished top half in offensive mm-hmm. DVOA and top 10 in offensive passing DVOA. It's, it's you know, a pretty big model of consistency. And I wonder if all of this change between a first-year head coach, a new team, not necessarily a new system because you kind of got to run the rust system, but right. The offense is the offense. <laughs> yeah. But I do think it's, you know, some of this does get worked out with timing. Some of this might get worked out uh, as you start to get more comfortable. But as of now, like between delay of games, between, you know, just bizarre play calling decisions uh, it's, they've got a lot to work on. Yeah. hundred percent. All right, the last thing we're going to hit on before we get out of here today is the Carolina offense. Now, I don't think we're ever going to talk very nicely about the Carolina offense on this show. At least I'm not. Uh, And at least through the first two weeks of the season, especially last week, the problem that I've noticed, something that has kind of limited the offense in general, is that everything they do in pass protection is to protect the rookie left tackle, Ike McQuanu. He just... He's been fine as a run blocker, but I think we've seen through his first two weeks, he just does not have it as a pass blocker right now. He gets way too short in his first kick step, and then he always has to – it takes too much for him to overreact and and get back into good spots, and then he kind of just throws himself all out of whack. So the the Carolina's coaching staff has just been like, well, screw it. We're just going to do everything we can to to protect him. Um, One thing they they went to, especially a lot last week, was um, pull protections. So what they they did they did a lot in this game. I I would say at least five times in this game, is they would go to play action and they would pull their right guard over to the left tackle side. And what this does is it gets uh, Aquanu gets to just kind of wash down inside, help on a defensive tackle. He gets help. He's not one on one on an island anymore. He kind of gets to just not be the main part of the protection anymore and then the right guard i think it's austin corbett gets to come out here and and take the the guy on the edge one-on-one they if you do that one or two times a game that's totally fine that can just be part of like your disguising part of your play action and i think it is in, in the sense of like they do run a lot of gap stuff in their run game the problem is it's always to Icky's side, and it's they did it like six times in this game so it's very clearly a a, a mechanism for them to make sure that Aquanu is not, you know, uh, a part of the, a big part of the protection scheme. Another thing I noticed that they did a lot is that anytime they added a bunch of extra bodies, whether it was on the line of scrimmage, in the backfield, bringing guys over, um, you know, maybe shifting guys over, um, all that jazz, 
anytime they put extra bodies on the line of scrimmage, it was to Icky's side, whether it was just like one tight end to, to give a little chip help or, um, you know, an inside stem. So the defensive end has to go outside of them and that gives Icky some help. Or if it was just like on this play where they come out in 13 personnel and put everybody on Iquanu's side. So he's, he's going to get a bunch of like extra space and time to work with. And he can actually um, block this guy here. I just, I even noticed that like anytime they sprinted out, they were sprinting out away from Aquanu so that, that, you know, he wasn't the main focal point. I don't want to like trash the guy. He's incredibly talented and I think he will figure it out eventually. It's just very clear right now that because he's struggling in pass protection, the offense is a little bit like hamstrung in the way that they can call their plays. Now, I don't think Baker Mayfield is a good enough quarterback to where even if they weren't hamstrung, that this would matter. Uh, but I think it's very clearly been kind of a pain point for them so far. Yeah, it's – I – offensive linemen are the really only position that gets consistently better with more reps. Like, it's it's the one position where you can really, you know, learn on the job. You can, you know, figure things out as you go. But it's a rough, it's a rough start. I mean, you – like, Carolina had their pick of who they wanted to go with. It, it, it really comes down to, you know – Ika McQuanu, Evan Neal, a little bit of Charles Cross, but he was picked pretty high too. But, you know, Carolina had that choice and they chose Icky. The way he started out, according to Sports Info Solutions, he is fourth among all linemen with minimum 50 snaps with a 5.8% blown block rate. And he is one of five linemen. Uh, uh, no, one of six linemen with six or more blown pass blocks. And that's with them, like, helping him on a lot of really reps. helping. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it, it, I'm not saying this isn't, you know, we're not writing his career off. We're not, you know, completely closing the door on him. We knew he was going to be a project. So, like, this is not all that surprising. This was probably, like, how this was going to go. It's it's just very tough on the offense that this is how it's going right now. It's definitely not the way you wanted it to start either. Yeah. It's, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But – Baker Mayfield's only played behind really good offensive lines for the most part. So having yeah. your left tackle be, you know, basically a revolving door at the moment. And the fact that you need, you know, to go into 13 personnel, or you need to address his side with an extra tight end. It's not, not the best, uh, best model for success there. Not, not the place to be in when you're basically telling the defense every time where your protection is going to be set. Um, yeah, I think uh, I will, the last thing I will say is, like, again, this is not meant to write him off entirely. Plenty of tackles struggle early on. Charles Cross has not been very good. Um, I Even a few years ago, we saw Andrew Thomas was horrific for the Giants, and he's really good now. Like, this is just – it's really hard to be a pass protector in this league, um, and you just hope that, truthfully, next year they get a different coach who can who can help him out a little bit better <laughs> than I think Matt Rule and his coaching staff have. Uh all right, I think that is going to do it for, for this week's show. Um, this was a good one. Uh, Kale, we're going to be back here next week. Hopefully, uh, maybe we can see a little bit more from Denver, or maybe uh, Gus Bradley will change his stripes in the Chiefs game. Who knows? Maybe we'll have some interesting stuff to, to talk about. Uh, until I was then, say, maybe we can bring a little bit more positivity. I've come <laughs> maybe, in two weeks maybe. basically saying, this week was tough. What is, <laughs> yeah, I've basically come in between the Patriots and the Broncos, just come in and said, like, what's wrong with this team? Maybe, maybe let's, uh, 
Let's let's aim for some positivity in week three. Let's hope we get some good examples. We'll shoot for those guys next time. All right, (laughs) until then, everybody, thank you for watching. Thank you, Kale, um, for doing this again. We'll see everybody next week.